It's Monday, February 26th. Don't call it a comeback. Seriously, don't. We start here. Donald Trump completes his sweep of early contests, trouncing Nikki Haley in her home state. There's nowhere that she is realistically positioned to win. Her most prominent backers are now pulling their funds, so what's next for Republicans? Alabama officials try to reassure IVF clinics, but is it too late? Making decisions with changing information every moment of the day. They fought for the family values vote. Now there's a backlash from young families. And is it possible to bury someone too quickly when they've been above ground for 200 years? They buried these remains in secret without people knowing. A tribute to black history unearths old tensions over ownership. From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. Hello, happy Monday. It's a great time of year, right? We're getting back a bit more daylight. Spring training is underway. It's a beautiful way to start a week, unless your name is Nikki Haley. This weekend was the South Carolina Republican primary, and there were really just two notable Republicans on the ballot, former President Donald Trump and Haley. Yes, the former U.N. ambassador, but perhaps more importantly here, the former South Carolina governor. The people in New Hampshire were really good to us, but let me tell you, when we got off the plane this morning, it's a great day in South Carolina. Remember, after she suffered disappointing finishes in Iowa and New Hampshire, she was quick to say, You just got to give me a moment. I'm going to get to my home state where these voters know me. They trust me. They know what I'm about. Well, she lost New Hampshire by 11. On Saturday night, she lost South Carolina by 20 points. It was 60-40. And once again, Donald Trump showed why he is the overwhelming favorite in the Republican Party right now. Let's start our week with Rick Klein, ABC's political director. Rick, what happened here? Yeah, this was a blowout, Brad. As you said, she was saying, we need to close the gap. We need to get closer than we were in New Hampshire. And the opposite happened. I want to congratulate Donald Trump on his victory. She ended up losing by a much larger margin uh, across the state. And keep in mind, this is a state that she represented as governor. She was elected statewide twice uh, by these same voters who then voted for Donald Trump. And they did it overwhelmingly across the conservative parts of the state. An even bigger win than we anticipated. The only exception was really the, the low country, Charleston, which is where Haley lives now near Charleston. And in that part of the state, that's where she picked up three delegates out of 50 total. So it, it really is an embarrassing showing for her. She hoped that this would put momentum into her campaign, uh, allow her to to show that she is on the march and that voters want to buy what she's selling. But right now, there's just no evidence of that when it's actually put to the question of Republican primary voters. And so if she had characterized all this as like, we need to build momentum, right? We need a better finish here, better finish here than a... Well, clearly she's going in the wrong direction. So, I mean, is this the moment she drops out or, or no? Well, here's the thing, Brad. The campaign is essentially national now. Uh, 20 states, uh, thereabouts, vote over the next eight days alone, and that includes Super Tuesday, where you've got 15 states, including some of the biggest, like California and Texas, selecting their delegates. So this is the moment that you either break through or you go home. I'm grateful to South Carolina. I always have been and I always will be. And I'm grateful that today is not the end of our story. Realistically speaking, I don't see how this campaign 
continues beyond Super Tuesday. Uh, but but even even if she were to somehow surprise in some places, she is not in a position where you can say, well, if this happens and that happens, she's on a path to be the Republican nominee. Right. Donald Trump is in an unbelievably commanding position that's about to get a lot stronger. Michigan's up and uh, we're going to have a tremendous success there. And then we have a thing called Super Tuesday. Because of the way the rules of these states are set, there's no way that Donald Trump won't be winning big over the next week or so. Uh, and Nikki Haley has no realistic way of catching up. She is not going to overtake him in the delegate count. She is not going to be the Republican nominee unless something huge happens to either Donald Trump or his campaign. Well, and you've told me, like, maybe that's the strategy. Like, you're like, Brad, let's be realistic. She's not going to start trouncing Trump everywhere. Maybe she wants to solidify herself as the alternative choice in case Trump does have to drop out for whatever reason. But at this point, Rick, my question to you is, can you actually call yourself the Trump fill-in if you haven't won a single state? Like, would the GOP even be cool with that down the road? I think the, the chances of that are about zero. I mean, let's think think it through and say that something happens to Donald Trump, either health-wise or, or legal-wise, that, that keeps him off the ballot. And if this goes to a convention, yeah, she'll have a bunch of delegates. But there's no scenario where all of those delegates that were elected to support Donald Trump support Nikki Haley, right. who's been out there saying he can't win and, and has to, we need someone else. We need a, a, a new voice. I think there would be a MAGA alternative. There would be a, a lot of people trying to get that crown. So I, I don't see it as a realistic path at this point. I mean, no no one likes to call themselves a protest vote. No one likes to talk about themselves as kind of a backup plan. But that's the territory Nikki Haley's in now. Uh, after losing her home state, there's nowhere that she is realistically positioned to win. And I don't even think her campaign is is trying to make that case. They're, they're mostly saying they're going on because there's a chunk of voters, maybe about 40 percent in South Carolina, who say they want someone other than Donald Trump. In fact, we're now learning that the super PAC that backed Haley so hard, the one that was bankrolled by Charles Koch, they say they're out, Rick. They're going to focus on down-ticket races. The Haley campaign says, that's fine, we just got a million dollars in new donations since the primary. But I I guess is the real question now, not who's going to win the nomination, but who's going to be Trump's running mate? Like, is that something that's kind of floating around Washington? Yeah, and because it's Trump, the candidates get to campaign out in the open. And are we ready to elect President Donald J. Trump to save America? He enjoys the veep stakes, and he is giving the potential running mates a lot of room to show up and talk on his behalf. People like Senator Tim Scott and Congresswoman Elise Stefanik and Governor Kristi Noem. The gridlock on Capitol Hill is not going to break in time to save America. We need a president who will. All of them are going to be put through the paces, and that means doing a lot of interviews, giving a lot of speeches. We deserve President Donald J. Trump. And CPAC just this past weekend in Washington was a MAGA takeover, but it was populated by the people that, that could be on the ticket, the shortlisters for, for Trump's vice presidency. It is open audition season. And I fully expect Donald Trump will take advantage of, of all of that, even though I'm told privately he's told people the, the Veep doesn't matter that much. He knows that this is a this is a show and it's a game. And I think we're going to have a lot of attention on that uh, on the number twos this time around, because both of the number ones, the likely number ones are so old. Right. In that respect, perhaps one of the more important vice presidential choices that we'll have in our lifetime. All right. Uh, Rick Klein, thank you so much. Thank you, Brad. Next up on Start Here, the fight over fertility has delivered a political crisis in Alabama. We'll take you there after the break. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever wondered what you would do with an extra hour in your day? I think about this all the time. I'm like, I would be so productive. I'd exercise more, or I'd read a book, or I'd take a nap, like restore myself. We often find ourselves yearning for these extra hours, but the real question is, what would you do if you were making yourself a priority? Well, how about therapy? 
It can help you discover what's important so you can make the most of your time. If you've ever benefited from therapy, you know how transformative it can be. It's not just for those who have experienced major trauma. Therapy empowers you to learn positive coping skills, set boundaries, and become the best version of yourself. If you're considering starting therapy, you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and tailored to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire. You'll be matched with a licensed therapist. And here's the beauty of it. You can switch therapists if you're not finding the right fit. No additional charge. Take the first step. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash start here today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash start here. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, when you see primary results like 60-40, one way of looking at this is, whoa, that is a blowout. The other is 40% of South Carolina Republicans didn't vote for Donald Trump. Now, maybe that is because Nikki Haley's from there. Maybe lots of these voters come back to Trump in November. But in exit polls, 35% of GLP voters said they do not see Trump as fit for office. These are Republican voters. Come November, you're going to need to reach an even bigger slice of the pie, which is why this news from Alabama's state Supreme Court a couple weeks ago that it now views embryos as children has been so tectonic among elected officials. Fertility clinics are shutting their doors in Alabama. And over this weekend, we saw more and more Republican officials trying to assure families this isn't what we had in mind. ABC's Elizabeth Scholz, has been tracking all this. And Elizabeth, you actually went to Alabama to report on all this. What are you hearing from people just trying to start families? You know, Brad, it was a lot of confusion, a lot of frustration, and frankly, a lot of sadness from these families, Brad. I mean, these families we've been speaking with had to make the incredibly difficult decision to go through IVF and vitro fertilization in the first place. So this is where you live? Yes, it is um, very humble. <laughs> we spoke with one woman named Gabby Price, who'd been trying to get pregnant for six years with her husband. We were shopping for baby items and we had went and got a baby book and um, it was during Christmas, so like people had given us gifts. So I have a box actually in a storage building of baby gifts um, that we got. They had a miscarriage that was devastating. They decided that the only option for them to have a baby was IVF. So they decided to sell their house. How much of your budget do you feel like is going towards fertility treatments? Um, a lot, most of it. I mean, a mortgage worth is how I feel about it. They moved into a camper van on their parents' property to save money so that they could afford IVF. I mean, it's not luxury in here, but but when it's worth it it's to worth try it. to get the treatment. It's, a, it's worth it. And they decided to take a new job that had fertility benefits simply so they could afford this process. And this is a process for families that is timed down to the day, to the hour. It's a science. Mm. And we found out from Gabby when we were talking with her, her doctor had just given her a call to say that that process is on hold. Something that we have been planning for and looking forward to and making life adjustments for for months now is possibly not going to be able to happen for who knows how long. 
there's too much uncertainty around this ruling that the doctors could be held liable for wrongful death because of the IVF process. And basically just how that works, Brad, is the ruling determined that embryos are children. This is the first time a court in the country has ever determined that embryos are children. And because embryos qualify as people, if they die, the person who is responsible for discarding them, which is often the clinics, can be held liable for wrongful death. So the doctors we're talking to are saying that's just too much of a liability for us. They've had to pause these treatments altogether. And that means that families like Gabby's are stuck in the middle. Yeah, Because it sounds like the ruling was basically like, yeah, no, you can do in vitro fertilization. You would just need to treat each embryo like a child. And maybe that means doing the process one embryo at a time, to which anyone who's been through in vitro is like, yeah, right. Exactly. And and this ruling does not ban IV. But it makes it so that it's so complicated and risky for these clinics that they just don't want to take that risk on. We have struggled with making decisions with changing information every moment of the day. We talked to Dr. Beth Milizia, who's with Alabama Fertility Specialists. This is one of three fertility clinics that has paused IVF treatments. What was it like making those calls to patients? It's very hard. These patients are already in such a stressful position. She told us that she's had to make heartbreaking phone calls to patients over the past week, that these patients had been so eager to schedule their embryo transfers. Fertility care, and just the diagnosis of fertility is very stressful. These patients walk in our doors stressed and anxious. The many studies show that it's equal to cancer treatment. So we've got patients who are already with this sort of extreme stress, and then you put this decision that's coming out of nowhere um, on top of that, and it's, yeah, it's awful. I do want to say that people who are in the middle of IVF, they are able to continue on because usually you have so many hormones, you're you're going through all this medication, it's actually too much of a health risk to just stop in the middle of that. But that's a small amount of people compared to the people who are so desperate to start those treatments and had embryo transfer scheduled. That is now all on hold. Well, okay, then we get other phone calls of, can we ship our embryos? And so initially we start taking names. I mean, we again, we want patients to be pregnant. What we've heard from some patients then is they want to move their embryos to another state. They're saying, okay, I can't do this in Alabama. Let me try to figure out where else I can. But then we start hearing this question of from some of these companies and that 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 derailed this. Turns out now, Brad, that's not even an option. Shipping companies that would move those embryos between states are saying they don't want to become liable. So they're not agreeing to do that. And really what this all means is that there's this incredible pause in place for so many of those families and the doctors trying to figure out if there's going to be clarity and when there's going to be clarity after this decision came out. What does it say that lawmakers are determining care instead of doctors like you? Yeah, that's probably one of the more frustrating things. You know, we have a hard enough time as physicians taking into consideration what somebody's insurance status is to provide them care, right? Doctors are telling us they're hopeful that this will be resolved quickly, and the most likely path that it will get resolved is through legislation in the state, Brad. Well, and can you tell me about what politicians are doing? Because generally, this is a state of Republican lawmakers in Alabama who are very much on the anti-abortion right side of things, right? And yet now... Are they in a position, Elizabeth, where they're like, well, shoot, like maybe we have to put in legislation that kind of supersedes the state Supreme Court because so many people don't like this ruling? Right. And remember, Alabama is one of 13 states in the country that has a total ban on abortion. So this is a state that is already very restrictive when it comes to women's reproductive rights. But even some of the lawmakers there are admitting 
this might have gone too far. I have a bill that says that uh, a uh, fertilized em uh, egg or embryo uh, has potential life. It's not actual life. So we've seen an effort from a Republican senator who is also a doctor, Brad, to introduce legislation that would, would basically preserve IVF. It would mean that these clinics can go forward and start doing the, the process again. Clinics that I've talked to like this uh, bill that I'm going to drop, and they think it'll, it'll be an answer for their, their problems and their future concerns. The governor says that she's working with lawmakers to try to make this legislation get through quickly. And now, in the meantime, we're hearing from the attorney general from the state of Alabama saying he's not going to prosecute clinics or families over in vitro fertilization. Does that change your calculus here with IVF treatments? Um, not right now. Um, our lab director and our legal counsel are, are still recommending that we do this kind of temporary modification. Some of the clinics we talked to say that's not really enough of a promise for them. Even if the state attorney general is coming out and saying that, he's very conservative. A lot of lawmakers in the state ha are openly anti-abortion. So some of the clinics say they're not sure they can trust that entirely. Even nationally, Brad, we have seen lawmakers on the Republican side try to show their support for IVF while kind of keeping that separate from the question of abortion and reproductive rights more broadly. Yeah, really interesting because Democrat, Republican, Independent, everyone wants to have families. That is a truly sort of thing that cuts across party lines here. So we'll see what happens. Elizabeth Schulze, great reporting. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Brad. Okay, one more quick break. When we come back, they showed up to what they thought was a burial, only to find the bodies were long gone. One last thing is next. We've got the exclusive view behind the table. Every day, right after the show, while the topics are still hot, the ladies go deeper into the moments that make the view the view. The View's Behind the Table podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And one last thing. An important part of Black History Month is learning about the people who got us where we are today, some of which are household names, some aren't. But there are also folks whose names we might never know. And in some ways, these are the figures who are flummoxing institutions. In fact, they're what led to a swirling controversy in Philadelphia this month. On behalf of the entire university, please accept my most sincere regrets and my deepest apologies. So in Philadelphia, you got the Penn Museum, part of the University of Pennsylvania. It's home to a renowned school of archaeology and anthropology. And for years, it's been home to skulls collected by Samuel George Morton. His idea was that you can measure the cranial capacity, the actual volume of the skull, um, to determine intellectual capacity. This is Ali Muhammad, a writer, community activist, and native Philadelphian who, a few years ago, learned about what's become as the Morton Cranial Collection. His racial theory was used to justify the enslavement of Africans. In the South, he was praised. Years have gone by. The racial science has been utterly debunked. But still, Penn had these skulls, hundreds of them, from various ethnicities around the world, and figured these could still be valuable teaching tools. They were used in research. There's images where people were, you know, pushing, kind of pushing the skulls around um, without any protection um, on, on kind of library carts um, at the Penn Museum. The issue, though, is most of these people presumably 
never donated their bodies to science. In fact, after a Penn spokesperson boldly declared that, unlike the rest of the Ivy League, their school's history had no direct ties to slavery, it's since been discovered that dozens of Morton's skulls belonged to enslaved people. Other bodies were collected after dying at the local poorhouse. A few years ago, Ali began publicly calling for these remains to be repatriated, returned. I was the first person to call for the university to return these remains to descendant communities. Well, a couple years ago, in an attempt to rectify the wrongs of the past, Penn put together a whole report apologizing for its handling of the skulls, vowing to repatriate the remains of 19 black Philadelphians, properly laying them to rest. Earlier this month, they held a ceremony to honor them. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. But that's when activists like Ali found out Penn had already buried them two weeks earlier at a site that hadn't necessarily been agreed to by everyone. January 22nd is when they actually interred them. They had a ceremony um, on February 3rd, um, but they buried these remains in secret without people knowing. Ali says this is one more example of Penn controlling the fate of these people who had already been exploited in death and that the remains should go to descendants. It is my sincere hope that continued research will be successful in restoring the identity of at least some of the Black Philadelphians in the Morton Collection. Penn says the schedule had to be accelerated because cemetery logistics required it. Most of the community, they say, is happy with the interment. After all, the remains are in an above-ground mausoleum in case they ever need to be moved again. And they say, descendants of whom? It's not like we can figure out who these people are, who their families were all these years later. That's not true, right? We have uncovered so much research about these individuals that Penn has completely neglected to do. And so that is further proof that they don't care, right? It's like, we're going to bury them and we're not going to learn more about them so we can honor them properly when we bury them. The university says it encourages more research, but that 200 years without being buried was long enough. They wanted to get this done now with no more delays. But this is something more and more research institutions are having to reckon with. Where did we find our specimens? Are we exploiting them without permission? And if we are, what do we owe them? These are people. Ali says, remember, UPenn sits in a predominantly black neighborhood in a predominantly black city. For years, black locals have been passing by a museum which harbored some of the very exhibits once used to justify white supremacy. What happens to these bodies next matters. I deeply, as a black person, understand that if we do not tend to um, caring for people in, in our afterlives, it has imp deep implications for the living, right? And if I don't do the care of, of restoring some kind of ceremony and, and memory to, to these people, it impacts me in my material conditions today. As of today, the historically black Eden Cemetery in Philly has 19 new residents. But whether they'll stay there, only history knows. I've been asked Ali, like, what, what else can you do? And they were like... There's a lot you can do. We've, we've got the technology. More on all these stories at abcnews.com or the ABC News app. I'm Brad Milky. See you tomorrow. The first ever criminal trial of a former president is underway in Manhattan. It's one of potentially four trials facing former President Trump as he makes his third bid for the White House. What do voters think about his culpability, and would a guilty verdict make a difference in the election? 
I'm Galen Druk, and every Monday and Thursday on the 538 Politics Podcast, we break down the latest news from the campaign trail. We sort through the noise and zoom in on what really matters using data and research as we go. That's 538 Politics every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.